following is a conversation with Matthew Dix. This is his second appearance on the podcast. Check out episode 44 to hear some of his original stories. And then as well, he might explain the absolute playbook for how to tell a good story. In the first podcast Matthew appeared on this show, he spoke about his book Storyworthy. And in this, his second appearance, we speak about, among other things, his book Someday is Today. Matthew has won more Moth Championships than anyone else in the world. And uh, just for your information, the Moth Championship is like the World Cup of storytelling. So in this podcast, we speak a little bit about Matthew's new book. We speak about wedding advice because he's a man who's emceed and DJed hundreds of them. We speak a little bit about productivity gurus and then as well the toxicity of that productivity space. And then as well, we throw in a little bit of Taleb just because I find myself bringing it up in almost every podcast. So please do hang around to the end, to the conclusion of this episode, to hear my ambition for the podcast. And with no further ado, here is the man himself, Matthew Dix. Welcome back, Mr. Dix. Thank you very much for having me back. It's a pleasure to be here. Mate, um, I'm thrilled to have you back. Uh, you'll also be happy to know that uh, my s- sister-in-law, well, I don't know if you'll be happy to know this or not, but this is what happened. My sister-in-law listened to the podcast where you featured uh, exactly a year ago, and you spoke about how you were the lord of something in Scotland. Sealand. The lord yes. of Sealand, exactly. Yes. And um, she bought me a nice block of land in Glencoe, which is somewhere in presumably a very beautiful part of Scotland. And I'm now officially a fellow lord. So um, a conversation between royals. It's fantastic. I love that. I always tell people when they say, like, I got to get my... I can get my son, husband something for Father's Day. I'm like, get him a lordship. He yeah, will always yeah. be happy. It has and they to always be the think best it's gift. stupid, but it's so great. Yeah. Have you visited your plot of land? I have not. No, sadly. Okay. Yeah. Well, neither have I. Uh, so <laughs> I haven't yet to be able to confirm that it actually exists. We're ruling from afar. Yeah, it's like <laughs> the uh, <laughs> ruling from afar. So this isn't directly to do with um, the book. However, something that really caught my attention, just because it's top of mind, is your work at weddings. So my mate, one of my best mates, actually, has asked me to officiate his wedding. So I'm looking for some advice. So I do officiating quite a bit now, uh, more than I DJ. I used to DJ weddings all the time, and I've sort of put that behind me for the most part. My suggestion is a couple things. First... Always assume you're the expert because no one else is. So when they ask you a question and you don't know the answer, just pick something because no one else knows and nothing will ever be wrong. So when they say, oh, do the does the bride go on the left or the right? You know, she <laughs> sure. goes on the left because women are always correct. And women are always right. But if you had said it the other way, nobody cares as long as someone is there as an, as an authority. So yeah. be the authority. And then the other thing is, and this is why people ask me to do it all the time, if you can tell a story about the couple yeah. in the midst of the ceremony, that can really mean something. Now, I always have to tell stories about strangers unless I happen to be you know, officiating the ceremony of friends. So it's a little trickier. I have to actually interview them. You probably have a good story already. Yeah, that was actually the reason they asked me to do it because this is like a classic um, high school tale. They've been dating each other since they were 15. Um, and now they're getting married and they didn't want just some guy, uh, to tell their story and they didn't have, you know, 
Senor Dix on the other end <laughs> who would be able to craft a, a marvelous story. It would just be some random guy. So I'm wondering though, how do I how do I uh, balance the line between sincerity, but also kind of taking the piss, but making it fun, but you know, I definitely don't want it to come off as a joke. You know, where do I, how do you do that? So I always ask myself, where does a story need humor as opposed to where can I be funny? Because you can almost always be funny if you True. know how yeah. humor works. So I'm always attempting to be funny strategically. So uh, in the very opening lines of a, of a story in the first, let's say, 30 seconds, dropping a joke there is always effective because it puts people at ease. Mm. They giggle a little. They feel like they're in good hands. Mm -hmm. And then moments of tension, moments of suspense, or something terrible has happened and everyone sort of needs to take a breath, <laughs> mm. that's a good moment to drop a joke as well. So don't be funny the whole way through, but just sort of strategically. Another way to do it is to just balance out your jokes. If you have a three-minute story, say, okay, I'm allowed to be funny every 45 seconds. And that okay. way I won't lean into the humor too much. That's what I have to do to myself. I sort of... So you can just be funny on command? Well, not on command, but if I have some preparation... You can kind of make anything funny if you want to. And, and a lot of times, frankly, you know, tragically, like 80% of humor is honestly the way you say something. So sure. just changing the way you say it can make it funny. So mm. you have to avoid it. Even in storytelling. And if I'm telling a story on a stage, I don't like the stories that I tell where people laugh the whole way through. I want to take them on an emotional journey. So I pull jokes out. People think I'm crazy. They're like, how can you let go of that joke? It's so hilarious. Mm. I'm like, well, my job isn't to be hilarious. My job is to tell a story and the humor is going to serve the story, but not be the purpose of the story. Mm. And I feel like you feel more when it's not just laughs the whole way through. Uh, right. if, and as well, the laughs that do happen, if they're sparse, uh, maybe given more emphasis and thought of more. Are right. you, when you're standing up and delivering these um, stories, speaking in front of a crowd, are you putting the story-worthy playbook to work, um, or is this maybe less designed? I'm putting the playbook to work for the most part, yeah. Okay. You know, the, the one change I make, I don't know if I talk about this in story-worthy, is you'll want to tell the story, if you can, from the second person. Meaning, rather than saying, Becky and John are walking down the hill, you'll want to say, I want you to see Becky and John. They're walking down a green hill, and they're holding hands. I want you to see their hands clearly, you know, clasped together. Uh, the reason we do that is if you're telling a story in the first person, you know, you telling your own story, your eyes are sort of the camera. When I say I look out the window and I see a car, what I'm really saying is my eyes are a camera. I want you to look out a window and see a car with me. When you have to tell someone else's story, if you say Becky and John are walking down a hill, the audience doesn't know what to focus on. And so they could be, you know, they could have a picture of overhead looking down at two people walking down a hill, or they could be focused on the hill more than Becky and John, mm. or they could be trying to figure out what Becky and John are wearing. Whereas what you might want is, I want to show the audience that Becky and John are already in love. So I'm going to have them holding hands, and that's the thing I want the audience to see. Mm. So by using that you, that second person, I want you to see this, now look at this. Now we see them doing this. It's essentially taking control of the camera and saying, mm -hmm. I'm going to have you focus on this element of the scene and not the whole scene. Mm. And, and how much do you go off the cuff typically? 
Well, in a wedding, I will go less off the cuff because it's not only me at stake. You know, it is their day at stake. Whereas I'll take the stage and be more than willing to go off the cuff because the only sure. person who's going sure. to suffer will be me if I fail. Yeah. The, so I'm going to be pretty prepared. The risk is less spread. <laughs> yeah. I, I have, when you're officiating, you have something in front of you. You either have a lectern or you have, I typically have sort of a fold, uh, like a, a, a lovely leather folder in front of me. And so the story will have bullets. I won't write the whole story out because I don't want to read it, but I definitely will have those bullets. So I just know what the next step of the story is going to be. And um, as well, I recently emceed a wedding and it's two people who I know very well, but I was terrified every time I was about to say either of their names that I was going to say the wrong name. Has this ever happened to you? All the time. (laughs) I'm not afraid that I'm going to... Well, I guess I am sometimes. I am sometimes afraid I'm going to say the wrong name. If you're watching me DJ a wedding and I am not sure, like the names have fallen out or I'm even unsure of them, I just go the bride and groom. So anytime you're like, you can't remember it's Becky and John, you're like, is it John or is it Jim? Bride and groom. I just say, everyone look to the bride and groom. And my DJ partner knows when I say bride and groom, I'll walk back. He'll go, forgot their names for a minute there, didn't you? (laughs) Or you can't pronounce their last names. You know, because their last name is so unpronounceable. You'll just go, ladies and gentlemen, it's Becky and John. And my partner will go, you're still afraid of that last name, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, but nobody cares, you know. They only care if you mess up the wrong... You don't want to say the wrong name. You so bride and yeah. groom is easy to replace. Yeah. Um, talk to me. So just as context for the audience, you said that you DJed and officiated. I think in the book you say something like 400 weddings. Um, do you know the number? It's uh, almost 500. We just did a wedding. This is the first time ever in 25 years I don't have another wedding on my calendar ahead. Okay, nice. Uh, So I think it was like 484. I remember my partner said like, we only have to do 16 more to get to 500. And I said, (laughs) I don't know if we're going to get to 500, buddy. (laughs) But you've done almost 500. Yes. Tell me about some of the horrors that you've had to endure. (laughs) (laughs) I think... The worst ones are the ones when the bride and groom fight and everything grinds to a halt. You know, I had one wedding very early on. I could have prevented it. The groom, who was very intoxicated during the cake cut, stuffed his fist into the cake, came out and then smeared the bride with the cake. And she wasn't even upset. Like she thought it was funny until she got to the bathroom and saw what he had done. Mm. And then she left the hall and went and sat in the car and locked herself in the car. Mm. And at that point as a DJ, it's rough because nobody wants to dance and you can't really do anything without a bride and groom. And so I could have prevented it. That was in like sort of year one How through five. How do you prevent that? De- well, I would have seen it coming and I would have stopped it. You know, okay. when I see him put his fist into the cake, which I've seen grooms do other stupid things like that, where they're preparing to really ruin the bride's day. I'll just step in and say, you don't want to do this right now because this would be a terrible thing. So pull back and do the right thing right now. Mm. And I just say it without the microphone, you know, and it's sort of it just is like that slap in the face to wake up a groom to what he's about to do. So those are the situations I've had brides and grooms fight and we can't find them for long periods of time because they've sort of gone off to fight. I found a bride once in the parking lot sitting in her dress up against the tire of a truck smoking a cigarette because she smoked and nobody knew that she smoked, including her new husband. She had decided to quit smoking on the day of the wedding 
And then she had come to the realization that she couldn't. And she was crying in a parking lot on the ground. So I had to sit next to her and sort of talk her through that situation to get her back to the party and mm. to ha- allow her to have a good time. Mm. So it's oftentimes situations like that that are the worst. And on the flip side, you I'm sure you've seen as well many, many beautiful weddings. What makes a wedding memorable, but then also particularly beautiful? I think when the wedding is not generic, that is my favorite part of a wedding. So the police officer whose best man was his uh, canine partner, you know, he had... <laughs> He oh. had the dogs, the drug sniffing dog as his best man because that's the person or the, the animal he spends the most time with. That was mm-hmm. beautiful. I did a wedding once. I thought it was going to be terrible and it worked out great. It was a Wiccan wedding. What's and that so mean? The, a Wiccan is sort of like a, for better word, it's sort of like witchcraft. It's a, it's a religion oh, cool. that believes in sort of that kind of a thing. Yeah. Wiccans are going to be mad that I just described it that way. I, my <laughs> apologies. But she had to cut her wrist and bleed on the ground that I would then officiate the wedding with. And I thought it was going to be terrible, but it was oddly really like personal to her. And it, you know, it wasn't like a slash. It was just a little nick, a little Mm -hmm. drop of blood on the ground. And it ended up being kind of lovely and and surprising. That is definitely surprising. Right. There was a groom (laughs) once who, um, the best man handed the ring to the groom and the groom dropped it. And we were on a brick patio And the rings went in between the two bricks and it held there for a minute, just clinging to the brick. And the groom went to go get it. And I I leaned in and said, slow down. There's no rush. But if it slips between the bricks, this is a bad day. (laughs) And he paused. He went. And then he reached in very carefully and pulled the ring out. And that was great because the moment he pulled it out, everyone cheered. Like it was like it didn't matter what happened at that point. (laughs) He had just saved the day. So. Those moments that make the wedding different than every other wedding, those are often the ones that are the most fun. So just a few more on weddings, forgive me. Uh, it might be a bit <laughs> self-indulgent, but I, uh, I I catered probably about 50 to 100 weddings back in the day. And so it's a much less intimate experience with the wedding. But nonetheless, you sort of sit on the sidelines and watch it all happen. And I am fascinated by what actually makes it a really memorable evening. But more importantly, and you're particularly qualified for this, what makes an amazing wedding speech? Because it is definitely a different tone, you know, a different vibe than, say, something you'll do with the moth. So in your experience, good speeches you've seen, maybe ones you've delivered yourself, a wedding speech. What are the crucial ingredients? What makes it good? I tell people to find something about the bride and groom that nobody knows about or the fewest number of people in the room okay, know about, nice. but is also emblematic of who they are. You know, that like that secret story or that thing that's not spoken about or just the thing you happen to know about them so that you're sharing something important, but something brand new. You know, you don't want to say they're kind and lovely and they're so sweet together because those are just platitudes. What you want is like a, a really good, there was a night... Seven years ago when this happened and I remember this. And, you know, when you can really get to that granular story specificity and share that with an audience, that's great. I always also say you can make fun of the groom, but you can't make fun of the bride. And um, don't even try to make fun of the bride. It's just always a mistake. Mm. You, you can say terrible things about a groom and everyone will laugh and that's perfectly fine. And But you want to make sure that the bride feels extraordinarily taken care of that day because... It's not often that a groom goes into a wedding 
with an enormous amount of nerves or worried that his vision of what the day would be is not going to be that vision because most grooms don't actually have a vision of the day. They haven't been thinking about it. They didn't have Barbie dolls getting married when they were eight. Mm. But women did have Barbie dolls and have been envisioning this day all their lives. And so I always want brides to know that I know what your vision is. I know how important it is to you and we're going to make sure it's perfect. So for that reason, there's no room for sort of teasing a bride about something that doesn't need to come up on Mm. that day. Have you... um been involved with many non-american weddings just to get a sense for the different the way different cultures address think about weddings i have i i've done lots of polish weddings just because of the population that i tend to be around and i guess i've done weddings for folks from southeast asia i did an australian wedding once but they're all people who are now living in america so Mm. There are some variations on a theme, but I think probably they're all a little more Americanized than if I had actually been in those Mm. countries. And my understanding of a caricature Americanized wedding is that there is so much pressure that this is supposed to be the best day of your life. Everyone's having big extravagant weddings, so there's all the gossip and comparison between them. Um, How true is that caricature? And if so, can you comment on why that kind of misses the whole point of a wedding in the first place? It does miss the point. And I think actually, well, I suspect that that's true in some places in the country. And I suspect probably the more money you have, the more that is the case. I do think that, especially since the pandemic, but even pre-pandemic, there really has been a shift to a less formal, more easy laid back sort of wedding. I've noticed that quite a bit. Uh, People are much more willing or more understanding that the amount of money that I spend on this wedding could be better spent elsewhere. I hear people talk about that a lot. Like I can spend $50,000 on my wedding or I can spend $10,000 on my wedding and have $40,000 as a down payment for our first home. And people are making that calculation Mm. a lot more than they were 20 years ago when I started DJing the first, you know, in the first place. People were more than willing to say, I'm throwing all of our money yeah. into the wedding. We'll worry about the house later <laughs> We're on. Go or into maybe debt we'll get enough party. gift. Yeah. So so I think it's been a shift. But I, I do think that if you have an enormous amount of money or a lot of money, you're sort of about that. It, like, the money is the important thing for you. So showing off how much money you have, I right. think, is why those people have those weddings. Uh, two more weddings, and we make them quick. What makes a good MC? Ah. Uh, well, the MC should never be the the focal point. I always say the MC is the spotlight who is directing the attention on particular people at certain times. There's sort of these like personality MCs who are sort of, you know, the life of the party. You should never be the life of the party. You should be helping other people become the life of the party. No one should remember you. Ideally, at the end, they should think that MC or those DJs like they played good music and all their equipment seemed to run and everything ran smoothly, but it shouldn't be like, he was so hilarious. Mm. You know, he was so much fun. It shouldn't be that. It should be Uncle Barry was so much fun, you mm. know, and Grandma Jean was so much fun. That's what a good MC helps to have happen. Nice. Finally, potentially, arguably the most important question for a wedding. You've been a DJ or still are a DJ, I suppose. Forgive me. Three guaranteed tunes that will unite a dance floor and give it energy? Ugh. Well, I guess it depends on the age and the type of crowd. So rather than giving you three songs, I will tell you this. Any song that the 
audience, the, the guests, will sing along to, that is the song that will unite everyone. So, so right it's now, Sweet like, Caroline. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> Sweet Caroline is perfect for most people. But uh, people of a younger generation, if I'm doing a wedding for 23-year-olds who mm-hmm. are not, you know, Red Sox fans, they're not going <laughs> to know that song as well. Don't Stop believing the Journey song. People want to sing that song as loud as they possibly nice, can. Nice, uh, um, Rick Springfield's Jesse's Girl. People love to right. sing that song. Anything that people love to sing, will you, that will unite the party more than mm. anything else. Mm. Yeah, it I, allows the people who can't dance to go on the dance floor and just pump their fists and sing words and feel like they're <laughs> part of the party. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Okay. Um, enough of the wedding chat. Forgive me. I just really wanted to uh, you know, pick the brain of someone deep in the industry Um, because my mates are now all getting married. So I'm going to have to apply some of this, uh, this, these lessons. So I've read the two books. Um, Well, you published a lot more, but story worthy. And some days today in there is a lot of uh, stories from your life and I get the sense and I'm sure you and your friends would agree, but you're just a terrific communicator. And I can only imagine the types of communication skills that you would need through teaching small children, dealing with the school bureaucrats, dealing with hysterical parents, writing fiction, writing nonfiction, speaking on stage, telling a captivating story. I think that communication, the ability to communicate is the most universal and important transferable skill for life, business, everything. Um, Do you agree with that statement? And then as well, how is one's ability to communicate linked uh, to their well-being. I do think it's probably the most important skill you can bring um, to life. All I have to do is look at the clients that I have on my roster. And it is basically any type of profession or person you could ever imagine. You know, I have everything from mall Santa Clauses who want to tell stories to little kids on their laps so they'll smile quicker so they can get more kids to sit on their laps and take those pictures all the way up to CEOs who need to communicate strategy about their company to shareholders and everything in between. People you wouldn't even imagine who need storytelling, like a wildlife photographer who desperately needs storytelling, not to even speak about his work, but to understand how to frame wildlife photography so that it tells a story. I've yet to meet sort of a person that can't benefit from that, both professionally and personally. So I think it's the best thing in terms of what you can bring to the table. When I was in a, when I was in Brazil a few years ago, I met with an engineering firm, and the guy who owned the firm told me that he now hires bad engineers who communicate well because he can hire a great engineer, but if they can't write an email or speak to a planning board or sell to a client, he doesn't know how to fix them. He said, I know how to fix a bad engineer. I can teach engineering but I can't teach communication. It's almost like they're permanently broken. So he said, can you fix them? And I said, not in a day, sad, sad to say. But I think that's a real thing that you can kind of be okay at your job, but also be the person who can write the perfect memo or deliver the perfect speech or go sell to the client. And you can get by really well on just being able to communicate effectively. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I agree with you. Wouldn't it be fascinating if you could somehow measure your ability to communicate the way you could measure, say, IQ and actually then track, say, income 
IQ and ability to communicate and then just watch the communication line trend more with income sort of the higher you get. Um, that's a complete uh, assumption, but it would be fascinating if you could somehow do that divide. So clearly professionally communication matters, but talk about relationships, talk about uh, personally at home, talking to your kids, your mum, your friends, difficult conversations with the wife, so forth. Well, I think when you can communicate, well, we'll say storytelling, but any kind of a communication tool like that, I think that by you speaking about yourself in a meaningful way and you being able to sort of pass on wisdom and ideas in an effective way, it brings you closer to people very quickly. I think that, you know, quite often people share deep and powerful secrets with me who I have never met in my life. I don't even have their name and they're sharing some ridiculous secret to me or, you know, people touch me all the time. It's the strangest thing. It just happened this weekend. I explained to this class of people that people always come up and they touch me. They pet my forearms all the time. And I don't even know who they are and they don't realize they're touching me. But what happens is they spend an hour or two in a workshop with me. I tell stories and get let them know me and suddenly they feel as close to me as they feel to some of the people they love. So I think that's really powerful. But the other thing is if you're dealing with anyone who you sort of want to teach something or convince them of something or to get through something with them, if you can tell a story and open up a heart and a mind, you can almost say anything after that and get people to believe you. I, I really fundamentally believe that when I tell a story and I touch someone's heart, what that really does is it opens them up to whatever I'm about to say next. So all of my teaching career working with 10 year olds has been, I'm going to tell you a story. It will be vulnerable and amusing and entertaining. And now let's do long division. And suddenly these kids are willing to run through walls for me. And if I can actually tell a story about long division, you know, my personal experience with long division as a kid or as an adult, that even increases the power because now I'm connecting story to content afterwards. And that's really, that's the golden, you know, that's the golden moment you're looking for. You can't always get that, but telling a story just opens hearts and minds in ways that um, allow things to happen that can't happen otherwise. But isn't it the case, like, not all communication is storytelling. There is as well, say, a brilliant economy of words, tone, um, knowing what the line is. Uh, these factors of communication that you have would have had to have developed because of the myriad of things I mentioned earlier, can you comment on those a, a little bit more rather than just the story side of things? Because the emotional appeal of a story, I think, is is very understandable, but the harder part is you know, the rest. Right. Part of it, I think, is that storytellers, or let's say effective communicators, effective communicators are excellent at both listening to themselves and paying attention to the person they're speaking to. What I've found is when someone is not an effective communicator, they're often speaking too long, they're not reading the room. They're not altering their emotional position. They're not altering volume, tone, pacing, all of those things. I think what happens is they really are sort of projection devices, but they're not listening devices, you know? They, they operate one way. And so I think that's what happens when people start using the same word or phrase all the time, too. They don't actually hear themselves saying mm. the same word or phrase. They get attached to these words that come out of their mouths constantly. They're just not listening to themselves and simultaneously really paying attention to the person in front of them, you know, and also being a great listener, too. I always tell people whenever I enter a room, I 
aggressively try to be the last person to speak every single time. That allows me to gather as much information as possible. So when I am prepared to communicate, I know as much as I can know about the people in the room. That means I'm going to choose anecdotes and stories and points. I'm going to assume position in ways that people who just sort of charge into rooms and think they should own the space, they often don't own the space because they don't know the space. And so if you want to be an effective communicator, you've got to be a listener of both yourself and the people who are speaking to you. That will allow you to do all the things that you described. In your lifetime, have you can you make a comment on how communication might have changed, whether people listen more or less, whether they use these filler words more or less, whether the vocabulary is more or less? I think that I think that the thing I've noticed over time is not any of the things that you described. I'm not sure if there's been a change really, other than perhaps people's attention span or people's willingness to indulge is a little, you know, decreased, I think. What do you mean willingness to indulge? I think that often I watch someone at a party or in any environment start to tell a story or start to speak about something. And if that thing is going to be two or three minutes and it's not incredibly entertaining, I watch people detach mentally, physically. They, they leave in a rush, you know. Right. There is an expectation, I think, these days that I really do need to be entertained right now. And if you're not doing it, I <laughs> yeah, will find okay. it elsewhere. And I think the fact that we have all of the world's information in our pockets at all times that can all entertain us whenever we want we're confronted with someone who's a little less entertaining. And I think it really is a matter of I'm capable of having a good time without you. It's in my pocket right. and I can just turn that on instead. So it's a much so I think lower that's tolerance. The one thing. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that people are entertained more often. There's not as much boredom as there was when I was a kid. Yeah. You know, you're not allowed to be bored because there's no reason to be bored because there's always something to make you laugh, cry, or, or teach you something. So why mm. would you ever be bored? So if someone is a little boring, we don't afford them the opportunity to sort of get their words out as mm. well as we used to. I've been asking um, as many older people as I can that question because I find these days, especially since I started doing this podcast and reading a lot more, you know, your curiosity sort of um, expand. And with that, you sort of want to, talk about them a little bit more, or at least maybe your expanding curiosity makes you more interested in what the other person might say, whatever. And I find that I will I just have way more engaging chats with people who are older than me. Um, and I don't know if that's just a consequence of an old person talking to a young person, or if it truly is a generational divide. And like, as you just said, you know, um, your, your freedom from boredom is just one pocket away. Yeah, I also think that the older you get, you know, and this is risking, you know, sounding like an old guy (laughs) telling young people something. But what I know is that when I was young, I was much more sure of myself and sure of my opinions. And it's not fun to talk to someone who doesn't have an open mind and who isn't willing to acknowledge that they might be wrong. There might be something to learn here or there might be like a third option. Maybe me and you are both wrong. And there's something we haven't even considered. When I was young, I think a lot of people are very certain about their position. And the older you get, the more you realize that there's a lot of nuance in the world. 
and speaking to someone who's willing to acknowledge nuance and ask questions and give ground and cede territory is a much more interesting conversation, I think. I, I recently, in a video I was recording with my production manager, who's a young person, I said at the end of the video, I said, and I just want you to know, I'm a normal kind of person. I'm not, and I described like a bunch of, you know, weird people in my industry. I, you know, I'm not people who title their stories or wear weird hats and things like that. And she said, I don't want you to use the word normal. That's not okay anymore. And I said, okay, I understand what you're saying. That like the fact that we're declaring something normal excludes people. That is absolutely true. Oh, I said, but God. there is a middle ground of the country, of this world and I think when we tell them they can't use the word normal to describe themselves, I think that's when we lose them. I think the way the reason that we're losing people is because we're deciding that words like normal are so offensive they can no longer be used. Whereas I think there's nuance in there to say it might not be the best word for us to use right now, but we have to accept the fact that it is it's okay. And we have to include the biggest tent of people possible. Otherwise, we're kicking people out because they're using the word normal. The young person that I was speaking to was having none of it. I think an older person would say, yes, you're right. Maybe normal in 50 years will be a word we don't even use anymore because we don't really want to identify something specifically as normal. But at this particular time in history, let's keep everyone in the tent. Let's let everyone sort of feel okay. We can tell them this is something to consider, but let's not say don't do it. Young people are very fond of saying don't do it rather than that more nuanced approach. I think that's why... The older you get, maybe the more interesting you are because you're willing to to filter in ideas that mm -hmm. others will not. Interesting. Um, I, I can't even imagine how hysterical you have to be to suggest that normal is exclusion exclusionary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, any that by that definition, unless you say everyone every single time, anything you say is exclusionary. But that doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> But what about talking to kids? So you're a primary school teacher. You have been doing it for 20 years or something, I believe. 25. 25 years. So you've seen 25 generations of kids. Do you notice any difference in them and their ability to listen to you and so forth? They are much more sophisticated today than they have ever been before. They are more knowledgeable. They are more aware. They are listening i think more than they used to to adults i think interesting so yeah people would they, assume the opposite i'm sure yeah no it's not true they are so keenly in tune to what adults are doing and saying and thinking at all times in a way that when i started teaching i feel like the kid world and the adult world were further apart when i was when i began teaching and i feel that those two worlds are so much closer mm. today than they ever were before you know my students complain about their parents. The parents are on the phone while they're trying to talk to them. No right? Way. We assume that it's kids who are constantly on their phones. Yeah. The kids are annoyed with their parents because when they're trying to speak to their parents, their parents are staring at the phone and they can't get their parents to stop staring at the phone. So kids are aware of that. Or kids are aware of, my father said something yesterday that was racist and I really don't know what to do about it. No you know, way. And I'd say, well, tell me what he said. And she would tell me and I'd say, you're right, that is racist. Oh, so okay. what are we going to do about it? Well, that wasn't good. 25 years ago. I don't think the kids heard it as much. I think they were just more separate from the yeah. adults and separate from those conversations. Today, they're much more in tune with it.
Interesting. That's uh, such a fascinating insight. And it does run contrary to, I suppose, what the accepted opinion or, or, or thought might be about the, the goddamn younger generation. Right. Well, you know, just today is it's a perfect example. I made lunch for my daughter and I had lunch with her and we sat in the room together and we talked about books and I teased her and she teased me and we talked a little bit about politics. Actually, she's 13. When I was a kid, you know, I told her this when I was a kid, my mother would hand me sandwiches and say, go outside. And, you know, it's hot today. So my daughter said, like, I'm glad I'm eating inside today and not outside. I said, when I was a kid, I only ate outside. My mother made me a sandwich and said, go back outside. There was a physical separation between the adult world and the kid mm. world when I was growing up. We just didn't occupy the same space. And I think nowadays it's much more likely that kids and adults are in the same spaces, hearing the same things and sort of doing the same things. My students absolutely are much more capable of having meaningful, nuanced conversations with me than the kids from 25 years ago. This uh, anecdote that you briefly mentioned, I'm not sure if you're aware, but it really hit a sweet spot for me, this uh, wildlife photographer. Are you at liberty to say who, who the client is? Yeah, probably. I mean, his name is Tin Man Lee. That's actually his real name, Tin Man Lee. Okay. He's won tons of awards in wildlife photography. He's really kind of extraordinary. You know, and what we've learned working together is that oftentimes what is not in the image is almost as important as what is in the image. And I say the same thing in storytelling. I always tell people what you don't say in a story is oftentimes more important than what you include in a story. And, you know, and Tin Man has taught me that like the eye tracks a, a, pho a photograph mm -hmm. in a certain way. And so when you can create a story in that way, it, it rings more true. You know, he talked to me about how the difference between taking a picture of a polar bear staring at you rather than a polar bear staring off at something. Staring off at something is much more interesting because it implies a larger world hmm. rather than a polar bear staring at you, which limits the world to just that singular face. So all of those kinds of things we've had long conversations about. That's so fascinating. I um I look forward to looking up his, his photos and, and seeing what it um yeah he's great yeah and seeing how somehow he's incorporating stories into these manufactured photos because there's such limitations when you're there to capture the right thing to have that right. other, other layer of okay how do i actually capture the story here and not just the object and the you know well it's a lot of the principles of it you know storytelling can you know storytelling or a story has suspense, stakes, and surprise. Every good story has those three things. And a photo can also have that. You know, when you're capturing, especially wildlife photography, are there stakes? Is there something I look at the mm. picture and go, oh, right? And is there surprise? Is there like a, oh, wow, I, I look at that. And is there suspense? I wonder what happened next. All three of those things can be contained in a photo. And that's what he attempts to do with every photo he takes. He's not just taking a picture of an animal that he got close to. He's trying to really engage the mind mm -hmm. of the viewer in a way that I think a lot of people don't think about. Unreal. The chapter, Say Yes, just tells again and again and again stories of serendipity, just in other words. So I'd love to hear you just reflect on the role that serendipity has played in your life. I think what happens is that people feel enormous hubris 
over being able to predict their future. They actually think they know what's good for them. You know, they think that they can see ahead and know that an opportunity, a yes or a no, is going to be right for them. And so for me, serendipity comes into play through the idea that I say yes to every opportunity. And, you know, in the book, I don't talk about the the yeses that I said that I eventually turned into a no, which you can do very easily. You say yes to something and then you decide, actually, that's not for me. You step back through the door and close it. At least you stepped through and got a sense of what it was. But when you say yes to everything, I think you can't help but run into surprises. So all of the things that I've said yes to that I never expected to change my life, they only happen because I'm constantly saying yes. You know, if you're being picky and choosy and assuming you know what path you're supposed to be on, you're only having one path, right? If you if you actually think you know the road to the future or to reach your goal, you will never have these bizarre side trails that lead you down to new unexpected and Mm -hmm. extraordinary things. So if your life is not filled with surprises, I suspect it's filled with no's. I suspect (laughs) you're not opening doors that you don't think are good for you. Hmm. I report to you that you don't know if a door is good for you. And if you think so, you're a dummy. If you actually think you know what the future behind each door could be, you're crazy to think that. Open the damn door and see what's behind it. I don't think we have enough opportunities in life. I don't think we have enough offers in life. So whenever one comes along, we have to say yes. And that's where mm-hmm. a life of surprise and therefore serendipity can come. Yeah. Um, are you familiar with this fella, Nassim Taleb? Wrote a couple of books about risk and randomness. Yes. Yeah, yes. I so am. for me, all I could think of throughout that chapter was this notion of anti-fragility. But he basically reduces, to become anti-fragile, go to parties, say yes, basically How can you predict a future of infinite possibilities based off your finite experience of the past? It is impossible to predict what one yes could potentially do. My conversation with you right now could, in an ideal world, be listened to by some literary agent. He goes, oh, that interviewer. Okay, let me look into him. He goes to my website and he sees that I've got this article that I want to turn into a book. And there you go. It's like, that's an idyllic path. It's a possible path. It's a very unlikely path. But that, I, I just, I, I took a lot of energy out of that chapter, say yes. And I, um, yeah. It's a pile of yeses too, which is really the thing. It's like playing the lottery. The more yeses you you say, the more opportunities you have for something extraordinary to happen. You know, I was asked by a, I was asked by the, the editor of a magazine for colored pencil aficionados to write something for them, right? Write a write a creative what piece. A niche. And, I know, what a niche, right? And, you know, my wife said, are you really going to write an article for colored pencil aficionados? And what would you ever write? I said, well, I'll write something on creativity. I'll just steal an idea from the book or an idea yeah. I've talked about before and I'll turn it into an article. And she said, but why would you do it? They have like 2,000 subscribers a month. It's a physical magazine that goes out to 2,000 people. And I said, well, I don't know who those people are. Mm. It's going to take me like 20 minutes to write this article. They're not asking me for much. Completely worth it. And what if one of them is, you know, my next great thing, you know? Yep. So probably, absolutely nothing will come of it. The, the magazine arrived. It's sitting on a shelf now. So I've got a magazine, which is a fun thing to pull out and go, hey, look, there's colored pencil aficionados in the world. And I wrote an article for them. That's a fun thing. Sort of like the Lord of Sealand, Right. But you just never know. But you got to make all of those yeses into a big pile and then some of them will yield what you're looking for. Mm. 
there are so many just terrific anecdotes throughout history of serendipitous moments genuinely not only changing a person's life but the course of history i forget the specific ones you mentioned in that chapter do any come to mind oh gosh i don't okay (laughs) but there are many i mean you're right there's Mm -hmm. like just a tiny little decision one way or another changes everything you know even the decision just to like continue on, like Richard Branson is one of my favorite ones. You know, his first business was selling parakeets and he went <laughs> out of business because the parakeets were overbreeding and he had too many parakeets and not enough customers, right? Nice. He said yes to like, I will do something else. I think a lot of times people don't say yes to the next thing. Mm-hmm. I think they say, I tried business. It didn't work out for me. Now I'm going to go go to law school like my parents wanted me to and I'll go be an attorney or I'll get into politics. Uh, I think that someone's willingness to fail and then try again, I think that's an important yes. That's that's a little thing. He's sending people to space, right? He started with parakeets and now he's onto spaceships. Mm. And there was a bunch of serendipity along the way, but I think most of it was he agreed to try something else. Mm. Um, how does that particularly relate to the productivity theme of the book? Um, because the way it was presented to me when I saw it on Twitter was that it was a productivity book. And the first, it's separated into three parts. The first part is 100% applicable productivity advice. Um, But why include a chapter like this in the productivity book when this is much more just a lifestyle design, you know, optimization type um, theme? I think that in addition to sort of those productivity hacks that I offer, you know, especially focusing on time and how we spend it and how we value it. I think a lot of times the people, the reason people aren't pursuing their creative dreams or making their dreams come true, it has a lot to do with what's going on inside them as well. You know, so I'm obsessed with sort of the ideas of maintaining your creative spirit, uh, staying positive, eliminating negativity in your life, ensuring that you're seeing the big picture at all times. These are not sort of easily quantified or tangible things, but I think they're the things that ruin people. When I coach people or when I consult with people, they're not often asking me, how can I find more time in the day? I think they should be. I think they're making a mistake because I think they're dithering away their minutes all the time. Mm. But the thing they're always asking me is, what do I do when like people say mean things to me and it doesn't make me want to get up the next morning? Or what do I do when I'm afraid that what I'm going to put out into the world isn't going to be just right and some people might say bad things about it? You know, so I'm interested in not only sort of those tactical, quantitative ways of making more of your day, but making sure that everything going on inside you is best prepared for the day and will keep you moving forward. Because I know people say life is short, but it really is not. It's a long journey of, you know, many, many steps. And I think sort of the idea of losing your hope or losing your momentum or your motivation, I think those things are even more devastating than dithering the minutes away. Speaking of dithering the minutes away, uh, (laughs) there was a sort of just a couple of throwaway lines that really stood out to me as being potentially like over pedantic and a signal for some of the toxicity in the guru space. And I'm 100% not leveling that onto you. I'm just saying it was a few throwaway lines and it could totally be in a different context. But it was you talking about emptying the dishwasher 
say, optimizing how you could shave 20 seconds off. And that meant 100 minutes in my life. And that's 100 minutes that I could spend with my boy. Um, you know, the marginal difference there, I, that, that's not productivity, isn't it? This is something else. It's not productivity, I guess, in terms of, well, no, I think it is. It's productivity. Yeah, I think it is. I think our lives are filled with tasks that need to be completed, but we don't want to be doing them. And so the less time we spend on tasks that don't bring us joy, the more time we have to do things that do bring us joy, whether that is pursuing a goal or spending time with your son or petting your cat. And so, yeah, I think there is a most productive way of emptying the dishwasher. Mm -hmm. And I watch other people empty their dishwashers and... I just see minutes falling on the floor. I was in the grocery store today, you know, and I, I don't know if I talk about it in the book, but I move quickly through grocery stores. You know, I, I have a very <laughs> You fast do talk pace. about it. I do. Yeah. And there was a woman in the grocery store today, and the way she was moving through the grocery store convinced me that she wanted to spend the rest of her life in the grocery store. She thought that this was a good place to be, the way she was moving. And I thought... Do you really have nothing in your life that makes you want to get out of this place as quickly as possible? Or even just walking across a parking lot. I'm astounded how people stroll through parking lots. We stroll through parks because there's good things to look at. You know, there's flowers and trees and sky. But people stroll through parking lots as if this is a place to be. And, mm. you know, for me, it makes people crazy who are with me, I know. But I, I'm a, a, not a sprint and not a run, but like the sprinting version of walking, that is me in a parking lot. It is me acknowledging this is not a place to be. No one should want to be in a parking lot and I want to make it as quick as possible. So no, I do think it is productivity. I think it's taking things we don't want to do and limiting the amount of time we do them so that we can be productive. How much of that specifically though, you're quickly getting out of the parking lot, watching someone else dilly dally and saying, what the hell are you doing? You could be doing something contributing to your life right now. How much of that is your just sort of atypical personality? You're someone who will optimize because you know, you, like you're in a great place. You know exactly what you want to be doing. You know exactly what else you could be doing. And so how much of it is that it's your own personality versus it's actually a lifestyle that other people should adopt. They should be optimizing at all times. <laughs> it's hard to say how much is personality and how much sort of was cultivated. You know, I know some of it was cultivated for sure. I know that there was a time in my life when I was not like this. And then there was a time in my life when I decided I needed to be like this. You know, for me, it was that hinge point of being robbed when I was, you know, 21 gun to the head, trigger about to be pulled. Mm. That for me is an awareness of the understanding of what it is like to end your life with regret because I really believed I was in the last moments of my life. And I think what I see in the world is a lot of people who think they have a someday, who don't understand the nature of buses running over people, mm. who really believe that there's plenty of time to do things. And when I see them dithering minutes at the dishwasher, I think you actually think that these minutes are meaningless to you, like that they're not worth anything. When like your child is in the other room sitting on the couch and you could sit with your child for two minutes or you could spend two extra minutes with the glasses and the plates. And that is the calculation I make. I don't think that most people will sort of get to the level of pedantic insanity that perhaps I have. Mm -hmm. 
but my goal is to get people to at least see it a little more clearly so that if you're not going to address your dishwasher issues, that's fine. But maybe you'll move quickly through a grocery store. Or maybe how about just choosing one grocery store instead of seven over the course of a week? Because I know people who shop in seven different stores for food over the course of a week. And because the fish is good here and the meat is good here, as if Mm. these things mean more than time spent with loved ones or doing things they love. So if I can move people a little bit in that direction, I think that's important. I just learned this week that David Cassidy, the musician from the Partridge family and beyond, the last sentence he spoke of his life was spoken to his daughter. And he said, so much wasted time. And that's David Cassidy. So, So insurance broker down the street who's dithering his minutes away how is he going to feel at the end of his life? That was David Cassidy mm, mm. who viewed his life like that. I think most people at the end, if you talk to hospice workers, you'll know, most people at the end look back and regret. Mm-hmm. And mostly it's a regret over things they haven't done. And there's time mm. to do it. But they spend <laughs> that time at the dishwasher yeah. or in a parking um, lot. That's instead of where they so heartbreaking to, to hear. And I, I think there's also a part of me that thinks that no matter how optimized you do make your life, you can say at the end, I gave it an honest go, but still all that time waste all those stupid decisions i should have been with you i should have been doing this um but just to to bow that uh there's a fantastic quote from the book and i I, i'm assuming this is you but it's just money can be made time cannot and um ultimately that has to then manifest itself into each individual and some people will look at the dishwasher and say Sorry, Mr. Dix, I'm still going to stack it in a very retarded way and pull it out in an equally stupid way. But um, I'm going to think differently now about, say, I don't know, my 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 proximity to work, etc. It, 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 it came to me just because right. I, I don't yes. actually have necessarily a strong opinion on this. I don't know where I fall, but this man, this Simtaleb, is a huge influence on me. And he talks a lot against this type of over-optimized lifestyle um, uh, creation and because he couches himself as a flaneur, you know, someone who, who would never organize blocks of time to be optimized. Instead, you would just wait for the, the, the burst of creativity to come around and so forth. And um, anyway, that's just, you know, how he how frames it. Um, you're now... You have now contributed to the productivity space, uh, something which has glorious upsides. Uh, like if you think of a friend of yours, Ali Abdal, who is actually the person who I discovered you through years ago when he was promoting Storyworthy, um, all the way down to the other end, people who aren't worth mentioning. But it is a space just uh, fraught with gurus of both a good and bad flavor. I just would love to hear you reflect on productivity gurus and the sort of productivity YouTube, the productivity space. Now you yourself have entered the uh, the playing field. Yes, I have. I guess, you know, I've certainly looked at my share of those folks and looked at the material they have. And uh, I'm sure I've gotten ideas from many of them, you know, meaningful ideas. I think what we have to really be careful for and what I hope I did in some days today is indicated that what we're trying to do is to have a fulfilled life. And so, you know, I have a friend named Shep. I don't know if I talk about him in the book, but 
Oh, actually, he writes the afterword of the book, my friend Shep, right? He has uh, a very terrible life in my mind, <laughs> meaning he has a wonderful job. And then when his job is done at the end of the day, he spends time with the person he is involved with at the time. And he brews some beer and he watches a lot of television. And then he repeats the next day. And for a long time, I thought he had a terrible life because he's really bright. He can write. He could be doing a whole bunch of other things. He's a very, very capable person. And one day he said to me, he said, listen, I know that you think I should be doing all these things. I'm instead choosing to lead a happy life. And this is for me a happy life. And he said, I think you're leading a happy life. I think you're happy with all of the things that you're doing. And that makes you happy. And I've never judged you for it. But I'm leading my happy life. And truly, this is what I want to be doing. And I think that's beautiful. And so, you know, in writing my book, my goal was, I'm not trying to help you be more productive so that you can write a book, build a business, you know, make the next great pyramid. I'm helping you be more productive because if you've always wanted to have a vegetable garden on the side of your house and you haven't, I'm hoping now maybe you'll be sparked to do it and more capable of doing it. Or if you just want to spend more time with your dog or you want to start walking, you know, or whatever it is. I think a lot of times when I watch and read productivity gurus, they're very focused on sort of building things and making things and um, making money and, and nice, those types of things. Whereas my hope is you read some days today and you go, oh, this is the way I can get on the couch so I can watch more movies because I love black and white movies. And if that's what emptying the dishwasher quicker does for you and moving through parking lots does for you to get you on the couch watching black and white movies, I think that's fantastic. So Shep helped me sort of move from the idea that I want people accomplishing mm. many things to I want people finding their place of happiness and then spending mm. as much time in that place of happiness as they can. That is my goal is to help them do that thing that they want to do. And you do. think that the sort of more toxic side of productivity culture doesn't emphasize that at all. It's like everything is optimized to just make more money, hustle harder. Yeah, and to sort of, um, I think there's a value judgment placed on dreams sometimes that I used to place on dreams, you know, that some dreams are worthy and some dreams are not. And if your goal is to sit on the couch and watch black and white movies for the rest of your life, maybe you should re-examine your life would have been something I think I would have heard from some of those gurus. Whereas for me, I would just say, make sure you're listening to yourself. Make sure that you know who you are, where you are, how you ended up here. I do think that most people live lives um, following the path of least resistance. I think quite often they end up doing what people tell them to do and what the world pushes them to do. I think people make no decisions rather than making bad decisions. And so quite often people end up in places they don't want to be. You know, my favorite question to ask someone is not, what do you do for a living? But tell me how you ended up in the job that you currently have. And when you listen to the ways people end up in these jobs, it's often like tragic because it is simply, my father knew a guy at this company and he got me the job. And mm -hmm. I'd say, oh, is it something you wanted to do? Well, no, but I came out of college and I needed a paycheck. Oh, so what did you want to do? I wanted to do this instead of that. Are you working towards this? He's like, well, no, because I'm kind of like entrenched in this company now. And in my mind, I'm just thinking, it's not what you want to do, man. <laughs> right? You've <laughs> trapped yourself. But if you've really been thoughtful and you've decided the couch and black and white movies is the thing you genuinely want to do, 
I have no value judgment whatsoever. You do yeah. that thing as long as you know what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, and, and you've made an active decision in that regard. The, the sort of um, trade-off that someone's making by not taking the risks, uh, you know, it is, it is a whole nother side that you need to figure out before you're deciding to optimize really anything in the first place. Yeah. Um, this quote stood out to me. I have discovered I am an unreliable, ineffective decision maker in the moment. I do things that make me happy now. I no longer rely on the current version of myself to make that decision. I try to look to the future, the hundred year old version of myself. Um, It's an amazing way to look at it, but then under it all, it's just discipline, right? You need discipline to do these things. And um, yeah, anyway. Yeah, you need discipline or you need a constant reminder. You know, that's why I tell people one of the exercises I have them do is to imagine your 100-year-old self, whatever that's going to be, and stick a picture up of that 100-year-old mm-hmm. self. I actually <laughs> have heard from many people have been emailing me. A woman emailed me today and she told me that she took a picture of Rose from Titanic and she posted <laughs> it all over her house. So every time she has to make like a conscious and important decision, yeah. she sees Rose and she goes, what does that 100-year-old version of me want to do? It's not to say that you should not live in the moment. And, you know, it's not to say that if I want ice cream today, even though it might mean I need to ride my bike three extra miles tomorrow, that I'm not going to do it. But if you ask me to make all of my decisions based upon who I am at this moment, I'm probably eating a cheeseburger and playing golf. That's basically (laughs) all I want to do. But some people do that. That is what they do with their lives. That's why we have, you know... That's why I know a guy who from the age of 18 to basically 40 has spent all of his time at work or playing video games because he's basically just living in a singular day without any idea of what the future might be for him or could be for him. So for me, I'm just always saying, I have an hour right now. And what would the 100-year-old version of me want to do with this hour? The, Mm. The current version of me would make a hot dog. And, and eat the hot dog, even though I had lunch. I'm a little hungry. Why not make a hot dog? Well, because Charlie's outside, you know, or there's a bike that I could go ride and maybe I'll see something extraordinary while I'm riding my bike or there's a book that's waiting to be written. So there's things that I can be doing that if I extract the immediate wants and needs from the, you know, from the equation and I look at where I'm trying to get to and what I'm trying to accomplish my decisions always end up better. Mm. And that wasn't always the case for me. That was not something I used to do all the time. That is something I've trained myself to do over time. You know, and a lot of it is just based on the idea that I do not want to suffer regret. I know how painful regret can be. So I'm trying to desperately avoid that at all costs. Mm. How much does that 100-year-old version of yourself change? So, for example, you look at the same decision five years apart, but now you're, you've you flipped the hundred year old person thinks differently about it. Yeah. He's gotten wiser, I guess, which is really (laughs) just to say I've gotten wiser, but there were decisions that I look back on and think, really, that was what my hundred year old version wanted me to do in that time. You know, the hundred year old version of me used to say, take every gig that you get because you need to make a big pile of money so that you can send your kids to college and you can do the things you want to do. Now the 100-year-old version of me says, be discerning and ask for more money and accept no's from people because you're too expensive. Mm. Because because quite often, you know, once you realize that you, you decide to do a workshop for a company and 
you know, we sign a contract and then three days before they cancel and you go, oh, thank goodness they canceled. You quickly realize like, I guess I shouldn't have taken that, right? right? Because if yeah. I'm happy they cancel, why am I doing it in the first place? So that version of me has gotten wiser, but it's still always been wiser than the version sitting here right now. Mm. There's more wisdom in asking yourself, where do I want to be in the end than where do I want to be an hour from now? And mm. I think that's what I do all the time. Talk to me about your uh, relationship with Ali Abdel. Um, in his most recent newsletter, he referred to you as his friend and uh, was highlighting some of the of his highlights from from your latest book. Um, has he done a? Re- I, I presume he's done a great job at promoting you. Um, talk to me about your relationship with him. Yeah, he has. You know, I'm happy to hear he calls me a friend. I always think if I haven't met you in person, am I your friend? But I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> Because I've certainly worked with, I've worked with clients for three years now, virtually, and mm-hmm. I'm as close to them as I am to my own friends. But he originally approached me because he was working on a book. And people often come to me not to help them write the book, but to sort of talk through the book, talk through the ideas of the book. Um, I push back on ideas a lot to like refine them. I do the same thing for entrepreneurs. They come to me with their company and they talk to me about it and I push back and we help shape. So I did that with a book for him. And then I've popped into his uh, into his YouTube workshops to teach storytelling to those YouTubers. And I've gotten to know a lot of his YouTubers along the way. Uh, you know, I was early on with him when he was sort of trying to make the decision whether he was going to continue in a, in the medical field or really like what felt like a crazy decision, leave the medical field to become a YouTube person, right? I was right there when he was making that decision. The best thing about it was he was making an active decision about his future and not allowing the world to push him in one direction or another. So I thought that was an extraordinary decision he made. It's obviously worked out quite well for him. He's doing really remarkably well. But, you know, he's the kind of person, to his everlasting credit, He is the type of person who, if you say something that means something to him, if you offer him an idea that he loves, he always attributes the idea to you. There are some people who I know, I just saw it happen actually, someone read Storyworthy and in their work, it's almost exactly me for a page in their work. I read it and went, is this like lifted right from Storyworthy? Now it wasn't, but it was pretty much absolutely my philosophy, 100% right out of the book. And there was no attribution to me. It was like, now it's mine and now I present it to you, right? Ali never does that. It is always, mm-hmm. Matthew Dix told me this thing. Matthew Dix taught me this. Storyworthy is the book to read, to learn the thing that I learned. So I admire people like that. I admire mm-hmm. people who are disseminators of information, enormous amounts of information but are also kind enough, generous enough, and humble enough to acknowledge that all of these thoughts don't originate in their own brains, but in other places too. Mm. Yeah, I I admire him so much as well. He's basically the same age as me, and um, I've been following him for a real long time, and you just see how ridiculously successful he is and sort of how vulnerable he, he gets. You know, sometimes you feel like he really overshares, and I'm like, I, I just don't know how if I would have the guts to do something like that. But um yeah, well, one you, would. One you would. You would if you were him because he gets positive responses to it, right? It's with all things. When you when I tell people to be vulnerable, you have to do it to realize people respond positively mm. to it and then you'll do it again. So, Yeah, and maybe it also, it does craft for you 
an extraordinarily deep relationship with a much smaller part of your audience, which is almost better than a vague relationship with a much bigger group of people. Yeah, and when you're vulnerable, the weird thing that happens is people hear it in a million different ways. So, you know, if I'm in a workshop with 10 people and I share a story that's deeply vulnerable, one person, it touches them in one way. Oh, that made me think of my mother. And another person's like, your mother? It made me think about like a girl in high school who was mean to me. And another one says, what? You know, for me, it made me think of the way I keep getting in accidents when I'm driving. Vulnerability is such a, it's sort of such a fruitful landscape that people can take from it what they will. And so when you open up your heart, people sort of like, they want to find the way to apply their circumstance to what you're describing desperately. I wrote a novel called Memoirs of an Imaginary Friend. And the protagonist in that book, or one of them, has autism. But I never say the word autism. I just portray him as a, mm. as a child with autism. And I get emails from people all the time saying, I also have a socially and emotionally disturbed child. I love the way you portrayed that circumstance. That child in the book, for me, is not socially emotionally disturbed. That child has autism. But people want to overlay their situations into spaces of vulnerability. So people have assumed a million things about Max in that book. Whatever their child has, that is what Max has. That's what they see. And so when you're vulnerable, you actually are able to touch people in ways you can't even begin to imagine. They come to you and they say something and you think, that's what you got from my story? But they do because they want to, they're desperate for connection. And so whenever you're vulnerable, they find a way into that story Mm. as best they can. I'm happy you brought up some of your other work. Um, I get the sense that you've got several pages, if not chapters, of a memoir already written. Um, if anyone listens to our first chat or reads one of your books, they'll understand it. Um, you know, really how much depth there is to your life in terms of the different places you've been, these wild stories. Apart from Stephen King on writing, which you love, and I loved sure. the anecdote that you told about him tossing Carrie into the into the trash and his wife picking it up. That actually, that scene got me really emotional when I I listened to it because it was this affirmation of the caring wife that even though uh, King hasn't made it yet, she believes in him, Uh, you know, uh, so it was beautiful. So clearly this is one that you um, admire very much in the memoir biography space. I'd like to ask you um, of some others that really inspire you and that you really like um, when you write your own memoir. Jesse Klein is pretty fantastic. She just had Never a second. Uh, she is a former SNL writer, comedian, um, speaker, writer. And um, she has uh, her second memoir just came out, or it's a book of essays, really, that are memoir-esque. And I love every single thing that she does. She is that beautiful combination of it's hilarious and heartbreaking. Like she manages to make me laugh and then she makes me just feel something and do that thing where suddenly I'm connecting to her story in a way she probably can't even begin to imagine. So uh, her new memoir just came out. I'm getting ready to read it. I'm desperately trying to finish the book I'm reading so I can get to it. I've considered abandoning the book I'm reading right now, which I often don't do in order to get to it. So I would recommend her for sure. You're the master of uh, of optimizing your time. Surely if the book is no longer giving you anything, it's an easy trade-off. Dump it. it- it's a book on storytelling. It's kind of like I need to it's read work. it for work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I do. And it's not it's not a good book on storytelling, so that's unfortunate. <laughs> I'm not getting anything out of it, but I'm sort of analyzing the competition. Mm-hmm. I'm actually praying that I can find a nugget that I can 
make use of. I have yet to find that nugget, but mm-hmm. I have maximized it in that I bought the book and the audio book so that I can do both because I've decided I've got to get through this book as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. So I can listen to it and read it and that's maximizing my time mm-hmm. as best as I can. So Jesse Klein is just fantastic. Any others? Um, classics? People of history? Um, people of history. Well, no, sorry. Don't let me narrow it. Uh, yeah. Just biographies and memoirs that inspire you and you think of when you're writing your own. Uh, Jenny Lawson, uh, her first book especially, which um, I can see the cover, but I can't tell you what the title of it is. But she's pretty fantastic. She had a she's a she's a writer who writes about an exceptionally difficult life with humor and heart. She she brings joy to tragedy in a way that I think is pretty spectacular. Mm. Um, That's a cornerstone to your work as well. All of your stories are, are kind of tragic and sad, but you make them very. You, you you're left with this with this heightened emotion afterwards. So maybe that's why you identify with that a lot. Yeah, yeah, I suspect you're right. Yeah, there's, you know, there's a difference between being sad and writing tragedy, but without hope, you know? It's the difference between it's tragic, but I'm going to provide you with a thought of what might come for the future. Mm. I think that makes a big difference. Um, I just read William Goldman's memoir, uh, Adventures in the Screen Trade. William Goldman's a screenwriter. He's written all the great movies of the world, Butch Cassidy and Sundance (laughs) Kid and The Princess Diary and a million movies that you have seen. Mm. And uh, he has a few books. So I just started with him, um, Adventures in the Screen Trade. It's entertaining as hell. And I learned an enormous amount about storytelling in reading that book. Mm -hmm. I actually took lessons he taught. And this weekend I rolled them out for the first time and said, all right, let's talk about William Goldman and what he's taught me about screenwriting and how it can be applied to storytelling. And that's Mm. through memoir too, which is brilliant. So um, that one's fantastic too. So if you're looking for the next sort of, you finish Stephen King's on writing, go to William Goldman's Adventures in the Screen Trade. I think that's fantastic. And how far along are you on the memoirs? Uh, I have... I have a memoir on a season of golf that I played with my friends that is done. We're not going to publish it yet because my agent has decided it should not be my first memoir because you don't want to be the guy. Oh, so is it kind of routine to publish several? I thought it was just a one and done. My life. Oh, no. Well, a memoir is different than an autobiography because a memoir suggests it's a section of your life. Okay. Whereas an autobiography is here is my life. So that's why they call it memoirs. I've always yeah. just thought they were the same, but it's yeah, okay. no, they're different. So okay. I have a memoir about that I was working on from like the ages of eighteen to twenty-one, my most tumultuous mm. tumultuous period of my life, and then I have another memoir about a terrible moment during my teaching career and sort of teaching in general. I think my agent has decided, along mm. with me to an extent, that the teaching memoir will be the first one that comes out because mm. it's um. It's very prescient for today. Like teachers are under assault by an enormous number of forces. And uh, there's lots of questions about the direction education is going in. So mm. a teaching memoir at this point feels like the one that's going to hit the market the right mm. way. So that's the one I'm sort of it focused m- on the most. It might be best to ask you offline, but I've never understood the details of what happened there. Because you've said in broad strokes twice that, you know, you basically um, were the subject of a big attack and people tried canceling you, yeah. Um, but you've never, or at least maybe I just missed it—the the details, what it was about. But maybe you don't want to save now. No, as well. I can. 
Okay. It's fine. It's I mean, it's a longer story, but I'll try to summarize a bit. I've been writing a blog every single day for the last almost 20 years. I haven't missed a day. At some point, you know, back in 2005, I was named Teacher of the Year for my school district. And I was a young teacher. I was only five years in. I think that created a little bit of animosity. I had a principal who really liked me and I liked him. We had a good relationship. It created a problem with at least one of my colleagues. And so what happened was uh, that colleague and perhaps a couple other people went through my years of blogs and excerpted posts from my blog. A good example would be like the day my mother died. I found out in my principal's office. They called me and told me. And he and I had a conversation. And part of the conversation was he said, take as much time as you need. You can do whatever you want. Go home and don't come back until you're ready. And these people, in an attempt to demonstrate favoritism, excerpted the lines. Plato, my boss, Plato, told me, you can do whatever you want. Go home or stay. It's totally up to you. Just that, without mentioning the death mm. of my mother or anything like that. So they did that again and again. They created a 27-page packet of that um, in a really frightful way. And then they compared me to, at the time, the Virginia Tech killer who had killed 32 people on a military base and defined me as a dangerous human being who should not be with children Mm. and also indicated that my wife should not be teaching children either because she had married me. And they sent that to the Board of Ed and the town council and the mayor. And typically an anonymous... Um, complaint, and this was done anonymously, is ignored, except it went to so many people I had to be dealt with. Ultimately, nothing was viewed as inappropriate. I did nothing wrong, and I got my I got to stay at my job. But that summer, they sent that same packet out to 300 families in my school district. And by then, I had already taken my blog down at the request of the school district and, and started a new one quietly. But because there was no context, now all the families just had these terrible things about me mm. without the context. You know, there was the worst one, probably the one that makes my wife crazy was at the time, girls were walking around with the word juicy on their butts. Like the company mm. Juicy was producing children's clothes with the word juicy across their butt. And I was writing about how inappropriate it was. Mm. Classy written, stuff. Yeah. And I wrote, your eye is drawn to text. And so you find yourself suddenly staring at the butt of a 10-year-old girl. The only sentence they took was, I find myself staring at the butts of 10-year-old girls, right? So they sent that to 300 families, and suddenly our life was uh, incredibly difficult. And it's a good ending because, you know... But you didn't move or anything. No, I stayed right where I was. I just... We dug in and said to hell with all of you. And the school district... You know, they couldn't do anything because I had done nothing wrong. And But they were worried that no parent would ever want their child in my class again. And so they had a meeting with the 23 parents who had children going into my class the next year and said, if you want to remove your child from Matt's class, you can. And they didn't think I'd be able to field a class of kids and I'd have to get some administrative job. And um, all 23 parents stayed, plus another 15 families offered to come into my class if someone withdrew because I had established such a positive and meaningful relationship with the community as a teacher that despite the fact that this small group of people despised me and wanted to ruin me, the community rose up and, mm-hmm. and um, took care of me. So in the end, it was good, but it was it was the most difficult summer of our lives and devastating. And to this day, I don't sort of have all the people pinned down in terms of who was responsible. I mean, even the police got involved. I know that the state's yeah, attorney so. got involved. Yeah. Yeah. It was really 
was incredibly difficult. But what an absurd thing to happen. Yeah. I uh, yeah I I I suppose this um, like you said is extremely difficult. I can only imagine how I would have reacted to that, and it would just wouldn't be well, you know, wouldn't be. Yeah. Well, the worst part was nothing bad had ever happened to my wife until that moment. She had really led like a blissful life. She would say that. She mm. says I don't remember much of my childhood because it was also blissfully wonderful. Mm. And so this was the first sort of real moment of trauma in her life. You know, from my experience, it was one of. Many, you know, when it happened to me, I would, I, I honestly thought, of course, Not this again. is happening to me. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's just every day there's a different shoe dropping in my life of, you know, messiness for some reason. But the fact that it impacted Alicia in the way that it did was the hardest part. If it mm. had been me alone, it would have been very different. But having my wife brought into it and they tried to get my principal fired at the same time, a man who I love, a man who officiated our wedding. You know, one of my closest friends to this day, you know, the fact that my wife and my principal were involved and were also, you know, really hurt by it. That was Mm. the hardest part for me. Are you vengeful? Uh, Do you want to have the people responsible hung, drawn and quartered? Um, I, I am vengeful in that I would very much like to have them exposed my understanding because they were purposefully anonymous they actually called themselves the concerned parent body of the town i live in and it wasn't even parents or it was primarily two or three teachers with maybe a couple of their parent friends Hmm. because i know they understood what they were doing was wrong based upon the anonymity that they hid behind i would love for their what they did to what they did to me to be exposed so it's never been officially come out Right. No, no. Truthfully, no one even remembers it anymore. I mean, Mm. it was 2007 when it happened and the way teachers sort of turn over in schools and superintendents. Like, I've been around for 25 years. There's not a lot of people who have been around for 25 years in my school district. So it's almost forgotten by everyone. There's very few people who remember it. And most of the people who remember it, remember it in a way that I am the positive figure in the story. But there is... Without exaggeration, there is not a single day that I don't open the door to my classroom and I think about the fact that I'm still here and that they tried to hurt me in a way, taking away the thing that I want to do most, which was teach children, which I do really well. Um, Every day when I touch my classroom door, I think of them. And my first thought is, I'm still here. Like, you didn't do it. But the other thought is, how easy is it for someone to upend your life with impunity? And I think about that all the time too. Yeah. Wow. Um, that's a perfectly natural place <laughs> to finish this, Mister Dix. Um, yeah, I can understand why that would be the 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 juice that would make a good first memoir. There's so many obvious corollaries uh, with uh, cancellation and so forth. Yeah. 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 However. Two very quick ones. I asked you the same last time. I want to ask you again. You answered Canada last time. What is a country that you're particularly bullish on looking forward? Ooh. I think it's still Canada. Okay. I do. I, You know, I would have maybe said, you know, my first thought was the UK because they, you know, they just uh, rid themselves of their prime minister and they, maybe they're making the right turn. But it's like 107 degrees in the UK today. So I'm sticking with Canada. <laughs> nice. And finally, a conversation between any two people of history, dead or alive, no language barrier, 
a podcast, who are you listening to? Two people that I'm looking for. Oof. Don't tell me what I said last time. Okay. Uh, this time, I think I'm going to say, I'll say Marvin Gaye. He was struck down early in life, and I just think he probably has stuff to share that he never did get to share. And let's say, I don't know what her name is, but I've recently learned through my daughter about a pirate, a Chinese female pirate from, I think, the 13th century. And we don't know much about her, except that she was a successful pirate in a time when women weren't allowed to do anything. And yet she was (laughs) the captain of a ship that pirated the South China Sea. So I'd take those two people together and see what happened. What Do you know what my last answer is? Love it. Unbelievably eclectic. Uh, it was Ruth, Gator, Bin, Ruth Bader Ginsburg because uh, she just died, so she was on your mind. And maybe Martin Luther King? Okay. That's a I good think, combination. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. a good one. So um, I'll be fact-checked if that's wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's what it was. Okay. But uh, fascinating. It's definitely the first of both of those people that we've had. So (laughs) brilliant. And, uh, Matthew, again, um, I'm sorry that we didn't necessarily touch on the book fully, but I think we got a bit of productivity in there. Um, I love the conversation. It was wonderful. Thank you so much, mate. And all the best. I, uh, yeah. All right. Let's do this again. Thank you very much. See you, mate. All right. Take care. Thanks. Thank you again, Matthew. It's an absolute thrill to have you on this show. Um, but to you now, my my dear listener, I just want to make this appeal to you. I want to explain what my ambition is for this podcast. And it really is quite simple. My hope is to corner the podcast market for eclectic curiosities in whatever country it is that you're listening in from. So how does one go about cornering a podcast market? Because eclectic curiosities is not a genre, it's not a searchable list that you can go and find. Basically, the only thing I can do to put any sort of energy into these various podcast algorithms is encourage you all to leave healthy, nice, fat, and juicy reviews. That's five stars on Spotify. That's five stars on a comment on Apple. That's five stars anywhere that you're listening to this show and to also encourage you to tell friends about it. So my hope is to corner the podcast market for eclectic curiosities. It's quite a lofty goal, but nonetheless, it is the one for this show. So please help me in making that ambition, uh, I don't know, a reality. (laughs) I don't know if that sounds weird, but please, reviews. So You've listened this far. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I hope you continue to enjoy it. Please, if you could just leave me a nice review, then that's the absolute best thing you could do. Until next week, ciao.